All right, let's get started. That's great. Father God, we thank you so much for um, for the church. We thank you for each other, God, and we thank you that you've given us brains to comprehend your truth, and um, the truth is so big, and we can't fully comprehend them, but we thank you that you have communicated us through your word to teach us about yourself. God, and I pray that as we um, discussed the topic of irresistible grace, that it would cause us to uh, be further humbled and that we would respond to you and worship even more, God. So we give you this time and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are going through the uh, tulip. Guys, tell me what a L stands for in tulip. What? No. What does T stand for in tulip? Total depravity. L. What about you? Unconditional. Unconditional election. Cool. What about L? Limited. Limited enrollment. And then I today is guess. What's on your sheet? Indelible grace. Indelible grace. Irresistible grace. So, and the next one is close. Use a different marker. First, they're ready for the saints. This is a pink one. Or the purple one's good. This is good. Alright, so, um,. We're, what we're going to do is we're going to give ourselves until around 10.30-ish, um, and then the rest of the time we'll give to questions and stuff like that, all right? So, um, let me, uh, so, Aristotle Bruce, actually, if you guys have ever uh, studied the five points of Calvinism as a whole, you'll, uh, you will at some point see that a lot of people do not like the terminology of it because, and actually, um, it is a little, it, it's not, like, fine-tuned, so there are... Uh, other phrases that we use to describe things. So for irresistible grace, I have a few of the things it's also called, it's also known as. So irresistible grace is also known as effectual calling. It's known as efficacious grace. It's known as overcoming grace. It's known as intoxicating grace. And my favorite is the magnificent defeat of the soul. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about why those things are. So we're going to... Um, uh, do the Westminster Catechism, and because Eric Jung just came from Westminster, can I have you read the Westminster Catechism of the description of irresistible grace? Yeah. <clears throat> All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they mo- as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. All right, that's one long uh, run-on sentence. So in simple English, uh, this is what I uh, translated into. God lovingly overcomes our stubborn, sinful wills with his never-giving-up grace, so we will willingly and joyfully turn to him. So uh, irresistible grace teaches that we are sinners. It teaches that there is nothing in us that wants to turn to God. But God in his love, he uh, He confronts us with his grace. And in that, he, he transforms our hearts so that we will want to turn to him. So I have a few questions here. Um, some questions or objections that people bring up um, when they when they when they hear this concept of irresistible grace. So a few of them, is God begging and pleading with us to come to him? So 
Uh, some people, they, you know, like you might have heard this in, um, in evangelistic services before where people say, um, God wants you to come so bad, but you have to be the one that makes the decision to come to him. Is that true or not? Uh, another question, will God save us only if we let him? Um, also, people say, you know, like, God loves you. He wants you to be saved, but you have to let God into your heart. You have to let Jesus into your hearts. Um, other people say, well, if it's irresistible, are we dragged into the kingdoms kicking and screaming? Do we, are there people who want to, uh, who, who just want to resist God, but God says, nope, you're coming with me. And the whole time they're going, no, 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 I don't want to go. Um, another one, does God want to save you, but ultimately leave the choice up to you? Those are similar to the first couple questions. Um, and this last one, does God violate our wills when he, when, he um, confronts us with his grace. So these are some of the questions that people ask. All right, so um, our first point is this. Overcoming grace is necessary because there's nothing in us that wants Christ. Um, which of these five points do you think this relates to? Our unwillingness to come to Christ. What do you think? And most the the T. What is total depravity? So, to, the, the doctrine of total depravity teaches that there is nothing in us that wants to do good. There's nothing in us that wants God. So, um, irresistible grace, or I, I use this phrase overcoming grace because I like it more. It's necessary because there's nothing in us that wants Christ. So, um, can I have dumb? Can I have you read this verse from Romans 3? Yeah. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one speaks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one, not even one. No one seeks God. So there's no one that really is naturally inclined to God. Um, and then uh, I'm going to just um, point out this one, what I have bolded in John 3, just for the sake of time. Um, John 3 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And who does wicked things? Everyone does wicked things, right? So everyone hates the light. So there's nothing in us that wants to turn to, turn to God. Um, all right, so this is a, we've got a verse from Hebrews 11. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Chow, can I have you read Hebrews 11.6? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. All right, so without faith, it's impossible to seek God. So if we want to approach God, if we want to be right with him, we have to have faith. But can we come up with that on our own? Um, the scriptures say no. Uh, can I have Michael? Can I have you read Ephesians two eight? <coughs> By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All right, thanks. So here's a so the solution to this problem that we don't have faith, or if if God really um, says that without faith it's impossible to please Him, then. Where do we get this faith? Where do we get um, what we need to approach God? And the scriptures say, God is the one that gives it. And this is where irresistible grace comes in. It's when we want, when God wants us, when God has chosen us to come to Him. Uh, God says, "I'm the one that will overcome your stubborn will. I'm the one that will overcome your sinful hearts." And how we, how does He do it? He gives us the faith that's necessary to approach Him. So we've got a few verses here that I think are really good. I'm going to ask uh, Mary Lou, can I have you read um, uh, Acts 11, 18? That's the gentleness also God has granted repentance that leads to All right. Who gives what we need to for life? 
God does. All right. Um, Michael, can I have you read uh, Acts sixteen fourteen? Uh, a woman named Lydia who was, uh, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to things. All right. Paul was evangelizing, and then this uh, Acts chapter sixteen it tells us that there's a woman um, who was a seller of linens, um, and she heard these things. And you know, like. Um, there's, there's a lot of evangelism done sometimes where it's very manipulative, you know? It's, you know, people will say, like, oh, close your eyes, and, you know, like, no one's looking around, and if you want to accept Christ, raise your hand, and then what's always in the background, there's always, like, this, like, really pretty music in, like, major key, um, with little, like, minor chord thrown in there sometimes, and it's just really, um, it's, it's used to, like, kind of bring us to an, an emotional state, and uh, this, this actually started in the 1800s with a guy named Charles Finney, where... He said he his his approach towards evangelism was we're going to bring as many people as we can um, to these revival meetings and we are going to give a powerful message and then same thing everyone close their eyes everyone bow their heads if you want to accept Christ raise your hand or walk up the aisle and they're just like kind of like um, psychological kind of group um, everyone come towards whatever and um, it's, it relies heavily on emotions it relies heavily on manipulating these emotions but if God really is a one that does all the work then we believe that we don't need that you know this is why like Michael never uh, says bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your hand you know if you accept Jesus um, because we believe that there's power in the word and we be- that believe that God works through his word and when he does that he does the same thing to us that he does did to Lydia that he opened our hearts to respond to the things that are spoken so this is how God works within um, irresistible grace. Is he is the one that does this sort of work. All right? Um, and then Ezekiel 36. So I'm going to address the problem of does God drag us into the kingdom kicking and screaming? So let me, um, do you guys, have you heard this uh, objection before or any thoughts on this? Like, do you believe that, have you heard people say this? Yeah, like people say, like, um, if, if, if there really is a thing as irresistible grace, it means like, um, um, for example, uh, you know, if you watch Star Wars, um, one of the famous lines from there is, resistance is futile, right? Because there's these, I forget who said it, so I don't know, I don't, I'm not like caught up on my Star Wars knowledge, but then um, one group of people are trying to overtake this other group of people. Um, and they say resistance is futile because we will eventually, we'll, we'll break down your defenses, we will destroy you, and we will defeat you. And um, people think of God working in those terms. Um, if, if we become Christians, does God will just grab you against your will? Does he say, you're coming with me, and the whole time we're going, no, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. Is that really how God works, if this concept of irresistible grace is true? And um, the good news is, no, we have this uh, verse... In Ezekiel 36, can I have you, Tommy, read uh, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27? Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. All right, thank you. So, um... So this heart of stone, this is something that we all have before we come to Christ. It's this heart that says, you know, like, I, I don't want to uh, obey God. I, there's nothing in me that wants to accept the things of God. 
Um, the cool thing is that God doesn't drag you into the kingdom kicking and screaming. What he does is he, he woos you like a, um, I don't, this is an imperfect example, but I'm going to use it because uh, it, I think it comes cl- um, somewhat close to what God does is he, he just draws you to himself. He, he, he makes himself so attractive to you that you go, this is what I want. And in the process of uh, bringing us to life, God says, I'm going to give you a heart that loves what you see because this is true beauty. This is true light. And God says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to remove the heart of stone that's naturally in you. And he says, I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh, a heart that goes, yes, I want you. I want the things of you. And um, if you've ever, you know, like um, there's a, when we think of romance, you know, like uh, we think if we say that someone's like irresistible, we don't say that that's a bad thing, right? We say that, you know, if there's like a beautiful woman here, and then there's like her potential <laughs> lover. Oops, her mic is kind of high. And then there's like a dude here, right? And then he just he sees her, and then he's like, "Wow." Um, he, like what? Uh, if if we say that this woman is irresistible, it doesn't mean that like she's like just grabbing him and saying, you come with me. No, he naturally, because he sees beauty, because his eyes are open to the beauty in her, he is drawn to her. He wants to be with her. So what does he do? He walks towards her, and then eventually, like, they get married, and, like, he's like, I'm so glad that there was, she was irresistible at some point. And when God gives us this new heart, um, we, it, it, he becomes so compelling that we want to approach him. And this is what God does when he brings us to life. Um, I have this verse in John 6, 37. Can I have you, Christine, read John 6, please? I'm all, sorry, do that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All right. So all that the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus talks with such certainty here, doesn't he? He says that they will come to me. He's saying that um, the work that God does is going to happen. It's going to happen for sure. It's absolutely guaranteed. Um, and Jesus accepts us. Okay. Any questions or comments at this point? Okay. Think about your questions because we'll have uh, some time to talk talk through those questions later. Um, all right, a believer can only turn to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so what is our natural state? And Brian, right? Or Alex. Alex, I'm sorry. Um, can you read us 1 Corinthians 2, please? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All right, so... Um, the scriptures say that if we, if, like, there's, there's, there's nothing in us, um, kind of, this kind of relates to our first point. There's nothing in us that wants things of God. We don't accept the, 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 the things of God. But the good news is John six, um, John chapter six, sixty three through sixty nine. Um, can I actually have, um, uh, Ashley? Can I have you read? Um, these I don't can you read the first half up to the end of the first bolded point or the first bolded line? 
It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay, so if we, if, if God wants us in his kingdom, he's the one that has to give us the, the willingness to, to go toward him. So um, it's through the, Holy, through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not through, you know, like psychological manipulation. It's not through, um, you know, forcing someone to go to church that we become saved, but it's be through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the biggest point of, this next point is the biggest point of irresistible grace. It's this, it's that God doesn't force us to repent and believe, but he enables us to repent and believe. So, um, can I have, um, Ryan, can you read Psalm 110, please? Where is it? Uh, right well, there, yeah. Okay. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. All right. The people will offer themselves what? Really? really people will want to offer themselves to God when God approaches in power. Um, Priscilla, can I have you read Ephesians, please? Uh, that the God, oh, that the God of your our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? All right. So, um, when God works in us, what happens? Our eyes are open, kind of like the guy that was uh, had his eyes open when he saw this beautiful woman. Like at some point, he was like busy, like, playing video games and stuff like that, and he was, like, um, <laughs> eating grapes. <laughs> um, but at some point, he sees something about her. Maybe he smells her perfume, and he's like, oh, what's that? Turns around, his eyes are open to the beauty in front of him, and God does this. Um, he opens our eyes, he enables us to see the truth. Um, and then this, uh, uh, last verse, Philippians 2. Um, Matthew, can I have you read this? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right. So this um, this actually comes into... This talks about, you know, like, I think we might have talked about how, you know, if, if God does all the work in us, if God is the one that does everything to save you, what responsibility do we have? And the question, the answer is right here in this verse. It's saying that we both have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to respond to God. But the last one, it says, um, it's God who works in you. So it says, I mean, when you approach work with fear and trembling, like this verse says here in Philippians, um, it's something really important, right? If you've ever had like a huge project at work or like a big assignment at school, you approach it because you're like, I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but I'm so scared. It's such a big task. But for the believer, we can say, you know, att attaining salvation, it's huge. It's And there's something we need to do to accept it. But then the scriptures say, but it's God who enables you to do that. It's God who gives you the power. God is the one that does the work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So um, that's like a very like quick, um, like, except most version of irresistible grace. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions if you guys have any right now. Does this make, kind of make sense? Any questions? 
Yes. Um, does that mean that every Christian has a like very distinct moment of like conversion, where they like kind of like in this situation where the guy sees the girl and mm-hmm. is like just absolutely like um, you know overwhelmed with her beauty. Right. And so like, does that mean that like every Christian has that point in their life? Yeah. Well, let me let me ask the class like. Um, <coughs> Uh, raise your hand if you're not sure when you became saved. Okay. And others of you guys know no, they're, they're, they're the time, right? So I would say that um, I think it's, it's actually a great if like, you can remember when that happens, if there was like a distinct moment. But for me, I don't know when I was saved. Um, but kind of as, as a uh, Calvinist, um, I can say um, I'm not sure, but I know that God has done work in me because it says, in time before the world was ever created, God was already already had me in his mind, and he's been working in my life. And I can point to probably like at least three moments in my life that where I knew that God was doing something, and I'm like, did I become a Christian then? Or did I become a Christian then? Or then? Like, I don't know for sure. Um, but I, I think um, like God is continuously drawing us to himself. And yeah, I think you might hear the story for a lot of people is that um, at some point, they realize I believe the gospel. I'm a Christian. I don't know what happened, but um, I don't know. You guys, what do you guys think? Michael, well, I think not all relationships starts off with like a sudden attraction like mm. that, too, right? Yeah. Like there's times when you're spending a lot of time with that person <laughs> and develops that relationship. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. Have you guys heard that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that, Michael. Thanks. Any questions? Does does that answer your question? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because it's like it's a big deal, right? Like, yeah, it's irresistible. It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> it's like it should be oh, one of those. Yeah. And I, I I'm, I'm just actually curious myself. Like, yeah, yeah. If you kind of portray it in this light, I'm just wondering, like, is it? You know, I think there is a point, but I don't think our minds can comprehend when it happens. And I think people today have it like, oh, like when I was in Sunday school and I was like five years old and then the Sunday school teacher said this and then I accepted Jesus and, and it could be that point, it couldn't be, we never know. But I think there is a point, but we don't really know based on our limited understanding. Well, I, I would add, I mean, one of the reasons why we baptize children of the church is because we are, the paradigm of instruction is that these children will always know the Savior uh, from their earliest memories. They don't need to go through a conversion, so to speak, because they're born in the church, they're born uh, knowing the gospel. So we taught the gospel always. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people, yourself, is like that. You've always known the gospel from your earliest memories. You've known that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And so we want to make that normative. We want to make that kind of like the ordinary thing. And then, of course, there are still people coming into the church, converting in their adult life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Um, and uh, I wrote this line up here, Regeneration Casey's faith. We can all maybe point to a moment when we said um, said yes to God, when we, when, we, when we realized we had the faith 
to approach God. Um, but this is this line right here. Um, actually, Armenians may disagree with this. Actually, they do. Um, but then this is huge in terms of understanding what happens in our in our in our spiritual walk. Is that there for all of us that that call ourselves Christians? We can say there was some point in which we made a conscious decision, maybe to to accept Christ. But then the scriptures teach that. God was regenerating you before you ever hit that point, before you stepped foot in church for the first time, before you ever heard scripture for the first time. God had regenerated you, and God was doing work in you before you were ever born, before your parents were ever born, um, before you ever heard the gospel for the first time. God had you in mind. God was doing this work in you. So this is something that three three lines. There's actually... um. Three lines that uh, are three, uh, three word phrase that I think um, kind of encapsulates um, this whole um, thing, the uh, tulip. Another one that I'm going to talk about next week is God saves sinners. <coughs> this is the essence of Calvinism that God saves sinners. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more tomorrow, or next week as we wrap it up. But it really, um, I mean, like, this whole, this whole irresistible grace is not isolated. This fits into the bigger picture of all of redemption, all of creation. The whole Bible is this. God saves <coughs> sinners. Um, and then um, uh, Calvinism, it's, you know, we, we put, it gives us the, the language to understand how God does that. Um, and it gives so much glory to God. Um, but Calvinism is not about this stuff. Calvinism is about this. It's about God. And it's about um, God getting glory from our salvation. Um, questions, yes. Um, so I'm trying to understand um, where people are coming from when they make that criticism about people being dragged into the kingdom. Yeah, actually, um, there's a... I don't know if it was... Um, I read this somewhere. I'm not sure if C.S. Lewis really said it. But C.S. Lewis equated irresistible grace to the raping of the soul. Because, uh, and I'm not sure. I hope he didn't say it, but then he might have. I don't know. He, he wrote so many things. But um, it's people think that you know God is violating our wills, right? Because, um, I mean, this, this comes into play when we say, like, oh, do we really have free will then if, we, if God um, draws us in through, by these means? Do we, can we really say no to God? Um, and when he, uh, so people kind of take this mindset, you know, like, if God really loved you, then he would leave you up your free will, and and you would be the one that made the ultimate choice, right? Have you guys heard that before? Um, this is actually very common thinking in, uh, even in a lot of churches, is um, to, 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 if God really, really loved you, he would preserve your free will, and he, and um, he wouldn't cast the final vote for what happens to you, right? Um, so I think that that thinking, some people do think that, um, and I guess like if you think in terms of if you think humanistically, then I guess so. Um, but uh, kind of maybe like an illustration that might help us is um, uh, actually I think my brother uh, gave this illustration before as well. Is um, if there's a kid running towards like traffic, uh, a parent. If we just let that kid, that kid has complete free will. He can run off into traffic. Um, but if a parent uh, let his kid do that, would he be loving? 
he, you'd say you'd be a horrible parent if you did not see that parent running towards him. But what God does is he runs towards us. He'll yell, he'll scream, and he may even have this look of anger. Um, but he goes, no, and he grabs the child and yanks him away from, from the traffic. What that parent did was the parent violated this kid's free will, right? Because in this free will, the child wanted to go to run to run into traffic. But because a parent loved the child, he said, no, this is not where you're going. And this is what God does. All of us, before we were saved, we're running as hard and as fast as we could towards hell. In our free will, God gives us the free will. But in his love, if you read Ephesians, God says he predestinates us in love. And we're running, running, running. And God says, no, because I love you, I will change your will. I will grab you and I will give you a heart of, of, of flesh that says, that realizes hell is not where I want to go. I want the things of God. And in that, God, I mean, you could say that, I don't know if, you could use this word, uh, word violate. God, in some sense, he does violate our wills. And thank God he does, right? Because if he didn't, where would we end up? Because there's nothing in us that wants things of God, right? Comments? Does that make sense? Kind of there's an important distinction between will and desire, right? And so is the question, does he violate our will? The answer is yes, because he changes our will. He gives us a heart of flesh. But the, the, the better question, the more precise question, is does he violate our desire? He never violates our desire. We always do what we desire. And what the work of regeneration is, is that God helps us by removing our blinders, by removing our uh, cold, dead hearts, so that we will desire beauty rather than what we're currently desiring, which is death. And mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, one analogy, for example, like Tim Keller uses, is like all of us as sinners, we think um, uh, filet mignon is a steaming pile of poo. And we think a steaming pile of poo is filet mignon. Mm-hmm. And so all of us are just shocked <coughs> what we think is filet mignon, but it's actually poo. And so what God does is he removes our blinders, and so that we say, oh my goodness, this is a steaming pile of poo. Yeah. And we go to what is the real, the feast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Thanks, that's really good. Um, questions, comments? Well, I feel like in a lot of these analogies, they're subjective. So, for example, um, like, you know, the guy who likes the girl and he's, like, attracted to her, irresistibly attracted to her or whatever. Like, other guys might see him and say, like, oh, he's just blinded by her. Or when, um, you know, Stockholm Syndrome, when a person gets kidnapped right. and she's like, falls in love with the kidnapper, mm-hmm. she thinks, like, subjectively that she's, like, you know, really in love with him, but right. everybody around her can say, like, oh, no, she's just, like, had this traumatic experience and doesn't really know what she wants. Yeah. Is there an objective way to dis- determine, like, whether we are the ones that are blinded or whether we are the ones that are have our eyes open? Mm. Um, well, I guess the objective standard would have to be based on the Bible, right? And what the Bible says is good and true. Um, so I guess the objective, that, that comes into do we... Um, uh, are we right now as as believers do we really have an attraction towards what is good and true? Um, so I guess if you believe that Jesus is good and true, and that's what you want, then I think that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to think of like you know like for the critics who don't hold so, yeah, to so the Bible's not, authority. It's not, a, it's not a subjective view, right? 
So we can say, like the Bible says, right? People love the darkness; they hate the light. We can say it is clearly light and darkness, right? So you know, uh, sin, uh, <coughs> adultery, greed—these things lead to death. And uh, faith in God, Christ—these things are life. These are objectively true, but uh, again, people always interpret it through their um, sinful nature, and so. Um, so that's why there's a supernatural world that's needed. But then it doesn't preclude, it doesn't exclude using, you know, rational arguments. You know what I'm saying? So you can't say, oh, it's just subjective. I'm just mm-hmm. going to wait. Because this is the way Mormons evangelize, right? The Mormon faith is, how shall I put it, a bit irrational, right? And so they don't use any arguments. They just say, read the Book of Mormon, and then you'll feel the burning in your bosom, and then you'll know. And uh, we Christians don't say that. We don't say, just read the Bible and you feel it burning in your bosom. We say, um, God will change your heart, but here's some evidences. Here's some solid arguments. I'm waiting to hear some solid arguments from Mormons. Yes. Yeah. Um, questions before we close up? So, I just wanted to clarify that this irresistible grace grace is is only after it's preceded by limited atonement so for those who have already been part of that limited group um oh so this irresistible grace only applies to those that are elect you're saying yeah um yeah so um yeah irresistible grace uh does um so the bible talks about um people that resist the will of god um, and actually, this is, I mean, this is nothing like God, like, God allows us to resist His will, um, and everyone at some point does, but the Bible says that, um, for those that are elect, God will overcome their resistance. Um, so, it, it applies only to the elect. There's no one that God wants saved that will not be saved, and there's no one that God has not predestined to, um, uh, to not be saved that, you know, that this applies to them. So. I hope we get into this. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the sort of stuff like you know, like when I evangelize or when I share the gospel, like it's I don't bring this stuff. Up. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is like, like uh, this is, or, or maybe a better way to put it is, you have no idea who's elect. Right. Yeah. Only God knows. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to think just maybe close out with kind of what we always talk about this stuff offline, but just kind of the bigger picture of the point of all this, right? Yeah. Because tulip, I think we can't discuss and talk about tulip if we don't already know the. And the, to your point, the objective proof that God is good, right? He desires redemption and restoration and the resurrection of the world. So we could, we're looking forward to ultimately, you know, our re- restoration and reconciliation, right? So we can't talk about Tulip if we don't know that God is good. Because when we start thinking he's mean, why is he so select? You know, there's just a distortion of mm-hmm. all this if we don't first know as a foundation the character of God. Like that, yeah. I think, needs to be meditated upon for a long time before we can fully digest and talk about these other yeah. issues. Yeah, yeah. And this is, like, that's a really good point. Like, this is the whole thing, this is, what this does is it gives us a picture of God, and um, you know, none of this is meant to like, cast God in a, like, cold, unloving manner, right? And it, it shows that God loves us, like, everyone who, like, who, who, who considers himself a believer um, should feel this deep humility that God in love chose us and um and uh so 
I think um, what 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 these doctrines teach us is um, that God really will do His work in us, and I actually have uh, some implications of irresistible grace. The success of evangelism is guaranteed. Um, there's no one too far gone that God cannot change his or her heart, um, and church does not res- need to resort to cheap tricks to bring people to the kingdom. God, in God, like this sort of stuff, it's um, like there's a there's a illustration that someone's used before where we invite everyone to come to the kingdom, and um, there's like when we, when we walk when we walk into um, heaven, there's going to be a banner that says uh, on this side um, before we hit it, it says welcome all all over all are welcome. Um, and then everyone enters in, and then we see on the other side, it says, "Welcome, um, you elect." Um, and like we're we're not we're not sure who is and who isn't elect, and um, it's not our, our our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to evangelize. And irresistible grace says that anyone that God has chosen, God guarantees that that person will be saved. So our work is not done in vain. Um, this is why there's so many Calvinist missionaries. People say, like, well, if God has chosen everyone, like, why even evangelize? The Calvinist says, because my success as a missionary is guaranteed. Um, and this is, um, so, this is, this uh, it should be very encouraging. And in terms of what Christine said, in terms of how this fits into the bigger picture, um, this is, you don't, like, I don't bog people down with this stuff when I, when I share the gospel. It's something that um, I think is very encouraging to us. But, um, yes, God, like, God offers uh, offers the offers His life to everyone, um, and in His in His love, God chooses chooses. He says, "Like I, you are mine, and you you will accept the offer." And God does that with in love, and um, He does He does this with. Uh, I mean, the, the whole this the bigger picture is that this uh, that God's work will be done, and it's guaranteed. Um, in, in individuals and in groups, so I don't know if that touched directly on. I I know I know it's it doesn't. It's, it's more just just God's character that He's good. So back to the point of like, is He is He really not beautiful? Like, is that guy really blinded? No, because we know that God is love and beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's not really the kidnapper kidnapping me. It is. I don't know. Yeah. I think I'm like going. I'm really high level thinking right now. So yeah, it's more like knowing God's character and knowing He's good is mm-hmm. to be kind of. Pretty rooted, so you know that you yeah. Blind, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more as we as we um, as we finish this series off next week. And actually, this is like all all of these could have, we could have given like two or three weeks to each of these points because there's, there's so much to say. And we will in like eighteen to twenty four months again, maybe we can expand it a bit so we can talk further about the implications and the questions that come with this. Um, can I close off um, the final quote I have here? Actually, I actually have three quotes, one from Piper, one from Paul Tripp, and one from um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, I'll read the one from Martin Lloyd-Jones at the, at the very bottom. It is that the Holy Spirit implants a principle within me which enables me for the first time in my life to discern and to apprehend something of this glorious, wonderful, wondrous truth. He works upon my will. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. This is the verse from Philippians. He does not strike me. He does not beat me. He does not coerce me. No, thank God what he does is operate upon my will so that I desire these things and rejoice in them and love them. He leads, he persuades, he acts upon my will in such a way that when he does, the call of the gospel is effectual and is certain and is sure. God's work never fails. God's work never fails. Um, God's work never fails. 
And when God works in a man or woman, the work is effective. So God loves us, and he loves us to the point that he says, there's no way you're going to live eternity apart from me. And because I love you, my grace will overcome your stubborn wills. Um, So... I will close in prayer, and uh, we can talk more about this later or next week. Um, so let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for, um, in love, um, choosing us and in love overcoming <coughs> our stubborn hearts, God. And I pray this would give us deep humility because it's not because we were smart enough to respond to you. It's not because we were um, some way better than those that don't know you. It's only by your grace, God. So we say glory to you alone. And um, may we live as people that uh, love and worship and respond to you um, well because you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture and because you um, overcome our, our stubborn hearts, God. So we praise you and we look forward to worshiping you together as we head into the sanctuary. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah.